You can break open your Bibles to Acts. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 1. We'll, we'll start in verse 12. Uh, my senior year of college, um, I, uh, I bought a, a fly fishing rod and, and all my gear. I know it's a shocker that I found a way to talk about fly fishing in a sermon. Um, but I, I'd wanted to fly fish for years. I can't remember when the movie uh, River Runs Through It came out, but, but it, it was something I was aware of. There was, there, was, there was something about fly fishing that was just like drawing me into itself like a tractor beam. So it was only a matter of time. So I'd start reading about fly fishing. I'd actually go to the library and I'd check out videos on fly fishing. This is, uh, DVDs existed then, but I couldn't find fly fishing DVDs, so I had to get a VHS. Unfortunately, uh, my family still had a VHS player. So I, I'd been gathering all this information, but now I had a rod. I had my, my fly line, my flies, my reel, and I had the Deschutes River. And, and I started going. I talked to a buddy into getting gear with me, and we'd go almost every weekend. Um, and, and I didn't catch hardly any fish. Like I, was, I was not a good fly fisherman. Now, at best, I'm an average fly fisherman. Um, I'd read so much, but I really didn't know much. One thing that I kept reading from different sources that confused me was I kept reading that it was critical that a fly fisherman was confident in what they were doing. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, why does that matter that I'm confident? And it's funny, though, as, as, as I've lived more life, I've, I've realized how critical that is actually in, in a ton of areas in life. And, and really what these different authors meant was they meant that, that you were expecting that you were going to catch a fish, that, that, that all this gear that you spent all this money on was, was going to be effective in helping you pull fish out of a river or lake or, or wherever you were fishing. Well, well, I didn't know much, and I, I wasn't expecting to catch fish. I was just, I was happy to be standing in a river and, and, and taking in the surroundings. I wasn't catching any fish yet. Eventually, my friends and I hired a, a guide that took us um, uh, down a section of the Deschutes River, and we learned a ton from that guy. Uh, still, when I go to the Deschutes River, there's three places from that trip almost 20 years ago that I hit every time. And, and I do expect that I'm going to catch fish. I know it, it, as long as the river's not blown out, there are going to be fish in these spots and, and I'm going to hook them. Um, but when you don't expect to catch fish, you're not engaged in the same way. Um, you, you can just get lost in the beauty of the river or the problems that, that you're dealing with. And, and you're going through the motions, you're fishing, but but you're not really fishing. There, there were times when, when I wasn't expecting to catch fish, and I'm, I'm quote-unquote fishing, and then I look at my line, and my hook's not even on anymore. I'm like, how long have I been fishing without a stinking hook? But, but you're, not, you're not paying attention, you're not dialed in, and yet when you expect to catch a fish, you're, you're dialed in, you're, you're holding on to that line, and, and you feel the, the tiniest movement that might be a fish slurping up your fly, and you try and set that hook this group that we come to in the upper room, they were confident, but they weren't confident in themselves. They were confident in God. They were filled with anticipation and expectation that God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, that, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the spirit was going to be given to them in power, and they were going to be a part of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here's our truth statement. Nothing will stop God's plans. Therefore, God's people live with expectation and trust as they follow him. All right, we'll see that today. God's not, God's not thwarted 
by even things like Judas betraying Jesus. God's not thwarted by anything. He's not caught off guard. He's working out his plan. He is sovereign, and God's people, therefore, we're able to live with this trust, with this expectation that God is at work as we follow him. So let's jump into verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the first picture that Luke gives us of this almost church. Jesus has ascended. He's told them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit that they will receive as the Father has promised. They know they know their mission. Like Matt mentioned, they were to tell everyone about Jesus, about who he was, about what he taught, about what he had done, that salvation was, was in him and in him alone. And they were to start there in Jerusalem. And then they would work out to Judea, Samaria, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. And it seems that there must have been moments that that mission, that task that they had been given, didn't just feel daunting, but it felt impossible. And at the same time, they'd seen the risen Lord. And they knew that he had defeated death. They understood that it was, it was uh, his blood that had paid for their sin. They saw him lifted up into heaven. And certainly these things, seeing these events, gave them great confidence in who they were trusting. Right? And they remembered that Jesus had said that the Father's sending the Spirit. When you have to wait, but this is what I do. I get out my phone. I look at a news app that really is filled with news that doesn't matter that much. I, I look at my weather app to see if there's snowflakes on there. There are none, in case you were wondering. Maybe you look at, at Robinhood or Coinbase to check your crypto, or you look at Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or, or, or your email or Messenger or whatever it is, but we're not that great at waiting. I'm not. How much more valuable would it be if we prayed when we're stuck in traffic? Uh, or, or, or prayed as we're waiting for that friend who's running a little late to meet us for coffee, or, or while we're in line at the grocery store interceding for a friend. And sometimes, certainly I think, to pray, and I'm sure you do too, but most of the time my reflex, like without even thinking, is I just pull out my phone. I don't even know why I do it, as if there's something really important on that screen. But the early Christians waited differently than we do. But it wasn't because they were really skilled at waiting, like they, like they possess a skill that we just don't have. No, they waited because they believed God. They had an expectation that God was at work. And what did they do? It says they prayed. That they gathered and they prayed. And, and they did it over and over again. They were together praying. They went to the upper room. Now, maybe this is the same upper room uh, as, the, as the Passover, but we don't, we don't know for sure. It doesn't really matter even. But the phrase there, it says, uh, it's where they were staying. But this doesn't mean that they were living there. The implication is that they were there so much, right, that it's, it's like this is the place they were staying because they were just coming over and over again, devoting themselves to prayer together. This is what the first Christians did. This is what made sense to them. They'd been given the mission to tell the world the good news, 
Jesus told them to expect the Spirit to wait, and they expected that what Jesus said was true, and they waited. And I'm sure they wondered, what would it be like? Right? He said the Spirit would come in power. Like, what would that feel like? What are we going to be able to do? Jesus certainly knew about power. He had risen from the dead. He descended to heaven. They were waiting and expecting that God was going to make good on his promise. And they needed him to because this mission to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, this was impossible on their own. They understood that the only way this could be accomplished was by God's doing, by God's power. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's going to use his people, though. We get to be a part of what he's going to do to bring salvation to people all over the globe. And we'll see this attitude in, in these early Christians in the book of Acts. But they're so excited that they get to be a part of God's mission. They're, they're excited even when they get to suffer for Jesus' name. So if I've ever guilt-tripped you, like if I guilt-tripped you last week about being witnesses in the world, shame on me because this is what we get to do. We get to be a part of, of God saving people. They understood this task was bigger than them. They, they came to the Lord and they prayed. And this upper room was big. I don't know what you picture when you read about the upper room, but we'll find out in the next verse that there's around 120 people there. So there's the 11 disciples it says the women were there. So the women, that, that certainly includes, like there's a ton of different Marys that are kind of hard to differentiate between. There's Joanna, uh, certainly Martha. Uh, we found out that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. We found out that Jesus' own brothers were there, which is incredible. It, we, you remember, hopefully, that not that long before, they didn't believe Jesus. Right? They're poking fun at him. But now, since his death and resurrection, they've come to see the truth about Jesus, and they too are there waiting, expecting that what Jesus promised was true. They prayed because they believed what Jesus taught them about prayer, right? They trusted that God listened when it listens while his people pray, and that God actually responds to the prayers of his people. I'm sure that some in that upper room recalled the parable that Luke would record. We find it in his 11th chapter of his gospel, the parable of the friend who comes at night knocking, at like midnight, knocking on the door, saying, friend, neighbor, I need bread. I've got these out-of-town guests. The owner of the house is like, man, I'm in bed. Leave me alone. My kids are in bed. Just shut up. I'll give you bread tomorrow. But the neighbor keeps knocking. He keeps knocking and knocking, and Jesus says, what's the owner going to do? The owner's going to give him the bread to get him out of there. And this parable isn't teaching us that, that God responds if we bug him enough, and then he'll leave us so that we'll leave him alone. No, the parable's teaching us that we come to God persistently in prayer. Jesus' next words in Luke 11 are about earthly fathers giving good gifts to their children, right? If earthly fathers do that, how much more? Can we expect that our Heavenly Father will give us good gifts? And if you're a parent, my guess is you know how true that is, right? I love giving my kids good things, things that they like. How much better is God at giving what is good? And what's interesting to me is that God has designed our relationship with him that we're to pray. We're to come before him. We get to speak to Yahweh. Right, we get to speak to the creator of all things, the author of life, the king of kings wants us to come to him and he says to do it 
persistently and with expectation that what he is going to give us will be good. He, respond, he responds to the prayers of his people. He loves to bless his children. He loves to give what is good. In verses 9 and 10 of Luke chapter 11, it won't be on the screen, he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. I don't know how many of you uh, have heard of the Haystack prayer meetings, but back in uh, 1805 in August in uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, there were five college students uh, from Williams College that wanted to gather together and talk about overseas missions. And at that time, uh, the U.S. had zero overseas missions focus, did not exist. Not one single organization, not one single church sending overseas. And these five college students, they had read uh, William Carey. If you don't know William Carey, he's called the father of modern missions. They read William Carey's missionary manifesto, and they wanted to get together and talk and pray about what this meant for the church, what this meant for Christians in America. So they're discussing these things, and then suddenly they find themselves in this crazy thunderstorm. And they're in a field. There's haystacks nearby. I don't really understand why they did this with haystacks, but, but uh, they're hollowed out in the middle. So these five guys went in there, and, and it was this perfect little place for them to have their meeting. And they talked about what William Carey said about the Great Commission. They talked about the church's misunderstanding of what that was at the time. And then they started praying, praying that God would raise up labors for the harvest. And then that prayer meeting, when that ended, it led to other prayer meetings. They started to gather regularly, and people heard about it and joined them. This group became, they became called the Brethren. And then they... Then as they were doing these prayer meetings, they realized, we need to go talk with churches. They'd, they'd, they'd try to get to meet with pastors or, or leaders in denominations. And long story short, after four years, uh, they helped form the first uh, missions board in the U.S. It is the, uh, it's called the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions. They were good at praying. They were not good at coming up with succinct names. Um, but this was the first missions board in America. And, and through the 19th century, it was the biggest. And, and these five guys, they, they went on actually to start multiple missions organizations. I'm not sure what the latest numbers are, but in North America, at least as of a few years ago, there were 1,700 missions organizations sending overseas to spread the gospel. And it started with just these five guys. A few weeks ago, I read an interview with uh, retired pastor Tim Keller. I don't know if you know who he is. He's written several books. Uh, maybe you've listened to his sermons. Um, but there's something about the headline of this interview that, that caught my attention. I don't even remember what it was. And, and really, I don't remember anything except for the very last question of this interview. Uh, the, the guy interviewing him said, if you could start over as a pastor, like, is there, is there one thing you'd change without missing a beat? He said, oh, that's easy. I would have prayed more. And I just shut my computer. I'm like, yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what we need to do. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're worried, it's our body's signal, it's our heart's signal that we need to pray. 
Right? We know God. We need to stop worrying as if that would do anything anyway and talk to the one who's in control, to the one who listens, the one who blesses his children. I love Romans 8, 28, 29. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, right? So everything like from the worst thing that could happen in your life to the best and everything in between, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God is using all things for the good of his people, right? And, and, it, and it's, he, he, he's known. He, he knew that he would choose you, that he would save you, that you were predestined. And, and he says that he's doing all this to conform you into the image of his son. Our best case scenario and our worst case scenario are the same. It's that God is making us more and more like Jesus. So back to the upper room. Luke describes uh, these, these people, these new Christ followers together. And what he describes is this unity. He says that they were of one accord. Right? They're, they're of one mind devoting themselves to prayer. And these are all kinds of people. Right? We have men, we have women, we have people from different walks of life. There's fishermen, there's tax collectors, business people, and yet they were one. And why were they united with each other? Well, they're united with each other because of their union with Jesus, right? So if they're united with Jesus, how could they not be united with one another? And this is a beautiful thing, right? There are plenty of issues that, that Christians will not see eye to eye on, Right? Like you might see something different than, than someone over here sees or, or vice versa. We will all see at least some things differently, but we come together as people that love God and want to see his name lifted high all over the globe. Verse 15 says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And this is Judas Iscariot who became a guide to those uh, who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known, I know, really disgusting, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uh, Al-Kadamah. That is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp be desolate and let, uh, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter, as we'll see, he becomes the leader. He becomes the spokesperson uh, for the early Christians. He stands up to this group of about 120 and helps them make sense of something that had to have been troubling them since Jesus' death. Now, certainly they, they were devastated when Jesus was crucified and then blown away three days later when he was resurrected. And over the 40 days, Jesus appeared to many of them. They taught about the kingdom using the scriptures. At one point, we're told that he appeared to a group of four, uh, 500. And I, I, I'm guessing that this 120, they're probably all there, or at least most of them there. And they'd come to see that God had ordained all of this, that the wicked act of killing the sinless son, Jesus, was not just permitted by God, but this was God's plan. And Peter's helping them see that this plan included Judas betraying them. You and I, we have no connection 
to Judas, right? As long as I can remember, I've known Judas as the one who sold out Jesus. That's the only perspective I've ever had is he's the betrayer, but these were his friends. The 12 had been together for three years. There's no doubt in my mind that they loved Judas. Even if they could look back and in retrospect see some things that that were sketchy, right? Maybe some, some signs that they should have realized that he was skimming money for three years. But he was one of them, and now he was gone. And and Peter says, we've all heard. We've all heard about his death, his suicide. After regretting that he had betrayed Jesus, he'd taken 30, uh, 30 silver coins and tried to give them back. The religious leaders, the priests, wouldn't take it because they said it was blood money, which is ironic because they were willing to pay the blood money, but they wouldn't take it back. So he threw it into the temple. It says they bought a piece of land with his money. And we're told that Judas hung himself. Now Luke says that he fell headlong. I don't know if that means that that the branch he hung himself on broke, very possible. And then Luke describes in incredibly gross detail that he burst open, his bowels gushed out, incredibly Uh, just grotesque. So Luke, why these details? Well, Luke is showing us that God's judgment came on Judas. And this is a situation where God's judgment came fairly quickly. We uh, will see other times in the book of Acts. In fact, just in a few chapters, we'll see that God has the right to judge whenever he wants. We are used to God being so patient with us giving us time to repent, time to turn to him, and we can forget that he does not owe us that. We would do well to remember that God will judge. Now, for those who have trusted in Jesus, he has taken on that judgment in our place for our sin. But for those who have not trusted in Jesus to save them, they will face Jesus as their judge. I can imagine if someone had noticed that um, Judas was stealing money, that he was skimming, skimming money off the top, and, and that he seemed to just get away with it, mocking God, as it, certainly Jesus knew. It, it might seem like, like he was just getting away with it. And in our world, it seems like that at times, that people are getting away with cheating or, or abuse or, or lying or whatever downright evil thing as, as they're trying to claw their way to the top. It looks like, like God's just letting them get away with it. And and you know what? They might. They might for for the rest of their life. They might get away with it, but one day they'll be judged. We can't take for granted God's patience because he does not have to let us live out our whole life that way. He could judge us whenever he wants. Peter tells the 120 that Judas was given a share of the ministry, right? And all this had been laid out, what Judas would do. He says that David prophesied this. We see this in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And my guess is if you went this afternoon to read Psalm 69, to read Psalm 109, Judas wouldn't jump off the page at you. In fact, you'd probably have to go back multiple times to figure out, okay, where, where's Peter saying that, he, that, that David said this? Now, now, you would see Jesus. It'd be easy for you to connect the dots about Jesus here, but Peter can see what David had prophesied, not only about Jesus, but about the one who would betray him. And being that Peter just came off 40 days with Jesus, opening his mind to the scriptures. I trust that Jesus is spot on here, or that Peter is spot on with his interpretation. I trust that Jesus is too. Um, That this was all a part of what God was doing, that that Judas betraying Jesus 
didn't catch God off guard. As painful as his betrayal was to this, this almost church, it, it wasn't to catch them off guard either. And now what needed to happen was they needed to replace Judas. Well, why does he need to be replaced? Well, Jesus had given the 12 a very specific role in Luke uh, 22, I think it's verse 39. Jesus tells them that, that the, the 12 will sit on thrones and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So Judas was not just dead, but he had left them. He'd, he'd given up his responsibility. He'd abandoned the faith. Judas would, uh, would be the only apostle that would be replaced. Right? James, uh, he would be killed in 41 AD. They didn't replace him. All of the other apostles, obviously, over the years would die. They didn't replace them. There, there wasn't an apostolic succession that needed to happen. This was not because Judas had died, but because he'd turned from Jesus and could not share in the ministry that he'd given, which is what Jesus, uh, David spoke of in Psalm 109.8, may another take his office. So verse 21 of uh, chapter one in Acts. So Peter says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus uh, went in, in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these to you have chosen to take uh, the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for him, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, the end of the story here, I think it's so uh, easy for us to get distracted by this casting of lots. We, we read that, like, what is that? It seems, I don't know, maybe mystical or naive or maybe even lazy. Um, but let's look first. Let's look closer at what Luke tells us. So first, they made this decision, we find out, with criteria. right? It had to be a guy that had been with us the whole time from John's baptism through the ascension. It had to be someone that had seen the resurrected Jesus himself. Now, because this is the foundation of the apostles, right? This is what, what we believe about Jesus comes from the eyewitness testimony. John, in his gospel and in his, in his letters, he's so great to remind us that what, what we're reading about is what they had seen with their own eyes. So the replacement has to fit this criteria, right? They weren't just looking around the room with the 120 going, hey, they're pretty passionate, or, or man, I, I love how that one prays. No, they had this, this criteria, and they're, they're vetting these guys. And two stood out. One named Joseph, who for some reason has a ton of nicknames. Um, Barsabbas, which either could have meant son of the Sabbath, which if that's what it meant, then he's probably born on the Sabbath, not a very creative name. Or it could have meant son of the old man, literally man with gray hair, meaning his dad was probably super old when he was born. Also not a great nickname. Um, fortunately, he was also called Justice, which is way better than son of the old man. Um, the other guy was Matthias, no nicknames. Uh, he didn't need one, apparently. But they vetted these different candidates, and it came down to these two. Right? They had two great choices before them. They knew them. We don't know them because they haven't been mentioned before. They won't be mentioned again. But Joseph and Matthias had been with the 12. They were not a mystery to these guys. These were two men that fit the criteria. And there was not an obvious choice between the two of them. So what did they do? Shocker, they prayed. 
because this, this was their instinct, right? these early Christians. We need to make a decision. Lord, we need you to guide us here. Perhaps they had Jesus' words that John would record in John 15 in their minds, apart from you, we can do nothing. So they come before the Lord saying, you know the heart of all, show us. Well, show us what? They said, show us who you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, right? They viewed this as God's decision. This was not them choosing. God, we need you to choose who will replace Judas and, and take on this ministry. And then they cast lots. I always think of casting lots as rolling dice for some reason or, or like drawing straws. But apparently what was most common was that they would take some stones and mark them or perhaps um, pieces of pottery and mark them, put them in a bag, shake them up. And the one that falls out is the one that God has chosen. Again, this is so foreign to us. It seems so uh, crazy to us, but this was a widely accepted practice. Like this was, this was taken as a, a godly practice in the Old Testament, right? To, to find out what God wills. We see this in Proverbs 16, 33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, I think this is a great example in scripture of when we come to a text, when we come to narrative especially, we need to understand, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Right? Luke records this not because this is the way that Christians are supposed to make our decisions. Right? Don't go home thinking that. He's describing a piece of the process in, in making this decision to replace Judas. Luke isn't prescribing that we make decisions this way, right? I wouldn't encourage you to choose a career this way or to choose where you're going to live or to choose a spouse this way. So when we come to a text, we've got to ask ourselves, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this telling us how to live? It's interesting. This is the last time in Scripture that we see the casting of lots. And most people, or many people, I should say, think that that's because after this, Christians receive the Holy Spirit. We don't need to cast lots anymore. But this last part of their decision-making is casting lots, right? First, they used wisdom, right? They thought through criteria. This was collective wisdom together. It wasn't just one person pushing through their agenda, their decision. They prayed. They trusted that God uh, had made the decision and would reveal it to them. So really what they're saying is, God, we trust you and we will follow you. You choose. You choose. Show us who you choose. We will trust you and follow you in that. And Matthias was chosen. And it's interesting, like I said, Joseph and Matthias, are, they're never mentioned again. And to be fair, most of the apostles aren't mentioned again. The apostles were critical. Right? They had a specific role for the church that was important, but it wasn't about them. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about how I'm gifted or how you're gifted. No, it's about Jesus and his work and his glory. So this almost church was gathered together praying because they expected that God was at work, that the Jews and the Gentiles needed to hear the good news. They appointed Matthias because they expected that God was going to send the Spirit, that they would receive the Spirit in power, and they needed to be ready for this mission that God had tasked them with. They lived with anticipation and expectation that God was at work, that he was going to use them. Do we anticipate the work of God in the world? Do we expect God to move in, in even our little part 
of the world? Do we expect that God will give us what we need to be his witnesses? Church, do we live as believers with expectation? When we live with expectation, I tell you, we will not worry nearly as much. You'll find that you, won't, you don't need to stress over what could happen this afternoon or this week or this year. When we live with expectation that God is at work, that nothing can stop him, that he is working not only for the good of his kingdom, but our good is included in that, there's a peace that comes with that. When we live with expectation in our God, we're on the lookout for where God is at work so that we can join him like these believers in Acts 1 will be driven to pray because we expect that God hears and responds and is already doing what we cannot see in hearts. There's a story in Mark chapter 9. This father brings his son to the disciples and then ultimately to Jesus to heal him. And they're having this conversation and the father says, if you can heal him. And Jesus like, stops him right away. If, if I can heal him, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man responds, he says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I remember the first time that passage hit me. I'm like, yeah, that is me. Like, yes, I, I believe these things. Lord, I believe in who you say you are. I believe that, that you are with me. I believe that you want to use me. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you want to save this person that I've been praying for. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you've created me for your good work to participate in what you're doing in this world. Help me in my unbelief. We can pray that about so many things. Would you pray with me now? Jesus, I assume that most of the people in this room, that most of the people online that are watching, that, that we believe in you. And yet, God, we confess that, that there's unbelief in us too. God, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us to live as a people that, that expect great things because you are great and your mission to save this world is great? Lord, would we be a people that, that aren't just sitting twiddling our thumbs, or would we be a people that are actively seeking you, Lord, actively on the lookout for what you might be doing in hearts, that we'd be active in, in just ready, ready to share about who you are, about the good news that we read in your word. Jesus, the, the, the task to tell the ends of the earth is, is so much greater than, than we can do. Lord, there's no way that on our own we can fulfill the Great Commission. It is only by the power of your Spirit that this can happen. Lord, we pray that you'd raise up laborers for the harvest. Lord, we, we pray that, that you would do that in our own city and beyond. Lord, that there would be people, that we would be people ready to talk about you, Jesus, ready and just dying to tell the good news, to tell about how you've saved us from our sin, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.